Thank you, Kina. On this special year when we mark a hundred years since the end of the First World War, exactly, I want to talk this morning about the significance of silence. In 2007, I was privileged to attend the service of remembrance at the Cenotaph, taking place now very close to us, just around the corner. I was there as the representative of the Methodist Church, and I was told weeks before what to wear, what color coat, when to arrive. I was sent by special post security tickets to get through the various barriers of security. I went at the time allotted, went through two bag searches, and I met members of the royal family and many other eminent people and the leaders of all the other main faith communities. It was a well-organized, well-choreographed event, and I enjoyed the hospitality, and I felt honored to be present. Our president, Mickey, will be going through the same experience this morning. But without a doubt, the poignancy, the gravity of the occasion hit home to me and I think everybody else present when we shared two minutes silence. When all the speaking, all the noise that would start up again at the end of two minutes stopped. In a world of so many words and so much unrelenting noise, the most significant part of a most significant occasion was silence. But then what would be said? I mean, there are some things that occur that we humans either walk into or we fall into or we run into, or we enter on a principle, or an accident, or a sign, or as a gamble, or as a... There are events when there are no words, no adequate words, and so we keep silent. And in a very real sense, the silence speaks more loudly than the words. Again today, a complete century on from the ending of the terrible and terrifying events of the Great War, the war to end all wars, it was said, though it didn't, a century over which, we're told, there has not been a single whole day in the last century where somewhere on this small planet, human beings have not been warring with each other. Very, very few of us now can actively remember the First World War. If we can, we are very old indeed. And it's been noticeable in the TV programs that have surrounded this special armistice remembrance. Uh, the extent to which people have recognized the need to bring about the notion of remembrance when fewer and fewer people can actually remember. Hmm. 
many more of us can actively remember the Second World War, though they too are getting elderly. Many, many more of us can remember more recent wars and conflicts, even down to today. But whether our remembrance is over many decades or just a few years, we all know what war does. We all know someone for whom war and conflict has been a life-changing event, to use the common jargon. We all see its effects. Modern technology brings into our living rooms pictures of people, whether they be in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan or South Sudan or Somalia or Pakistan or a number of other places. There is only 11 countries in the whole world who are actually free from conflict of one sort or another today. So we don't speak. We keep silent. And we let the silence speak what is felt very deeply. Silence, you see, is significant. But of course the word significant means something is signified. The origins of Armistice Day and its poignant two-minute silence signifies when the gunfire ceased and the ceasefire started. When peace followed war. The sheer reality and noise of war, we know, drives some people quite literally mad. Mad in a sense that they never fully recover. Those of us who have thankfully never actively served in a time of war, I guess can't possibly know what that's like. But if we use an absurd, common, non-equivalent, we all know after a time of great stress or a time of great testing in our own lives or a horrible event or series of events that have taken place in our lives, when you get to the end of it or you get to the end of that day or that occasion and you breathe one of those sighs and you suddenly become aware of stillness. The silence is sometimes a thing of great meaning. The armistice is the significant silence marking the end of noisy war. Listening to the silence, because silence can be heard, sometimes it marks peace and quiet. But silence, as we know full well today, also often signifies death. When a baby, a human baby, is first born, you await a first cry, a noise, because that noise signifies life. If there is no noise and there continues to be no noise, it tragically marks no life. And and incidentally, we again host the saying goodbye service later this month when those who have suffered 
the experience of baby loss, whether in pregnancy or birth or early infancy, will come to remember the tragedy of there being only silence. I remember some years ago walking in some of those huge graveyards in northern France and Belgium that's been on the TV this week. They're full of simple crosses in some of them and simple small gravestones in others. And large mausoleums, uh, usually in the centre or sometimes scattered around the huge fields that mark the death of hundreds and hundreds of soldiers from all sorts of places, from all around the world. When I went there, it was silent except for the wind. There were other people in that graveyard, but like me, it felt almost impossible that you should turn round to whoever you were walking with and ask them about the weather or share a joke. The place did something, and everybody in it walked round in silence. And in that context, there was no possibility of imagining that the silence signified was anything other than the remembering of death. The silence after Hiroshima was a terrible silence because of what it signified. Silence is significant not only when those who are alive have no words. It's also significant when there's no one alive to make noise. Enforced silence is significant. And today we remember that significance of silence for the millions who fell silent. For the hundreds of thousands who still do year on year in our world today because of wars and conflicts of various kinds. There are many occasions in the Bible when the significance of silence is recorded. For example, it's implied in the very first verses of the Bible in the book of Genesis, where we read that the earth is empty and void. And the capturing of the meaning of the words mean most probably that includes the void, the absence of any sound. But one of the most intriguing references in the Bible is found in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 8 of John's Revelation, verse 1, we read this. And when he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The context is relatively straightforward. The Lord Jesus has returned to heaven victorious as the conqueror of death and the promiser of eternal life. And he sits on the right hand of the God the Father. 
And as such, as the reigning Lord, he is alone, the one who has the right to open a book with seven seals. And as they are opened, and they begin to be opened at the start of Revelation chapter six, as they are opened, they tell, they let loose every sort of evil present on the earth, including violence and death and war and suffering. They tell of the day of the Lord and the day of God's judgment and wrath. When the seventh seal is opened, there's silence. What is this silence in heaven all about? Those who predict the conditions before and after the return of the Lord will talk lengthily and sometimes in incredible detail about what this passage in Revelation means. Does it, for instance, declare a thousand years of tribulation on earth before the Lord's return or does it declare the Lord will return and then there will be tribulation on earth? Does it mean there will be tribulation on earth for everybody or will some people be removed from it and how and when, etc., etc.? But on, on this special day, I'd like us to think that the silence in heaven signifies what we've been talking about this morning. We witness the reality of war and conflict and a host of other things that beset our earth today, particularly those of our own human making. And sometimes, often when we're most deeply moved, we fall silent because we're appalled. Some are angry and some vent their anger by shouting. But some of us, the more angry we get, the more quiet and silent we become. And, and this is very, very important, when there is silence in heaven, God is silent. God is appalled at the things that his beloved creatures do and do to each other. God is angry. But silence in heaven probably has another meaning in addition to that one. As the whole hosts of heaven look at Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is the focus of this narrative and unfolds the seals, the seven seals of the book. They see the lamb who was slain. It's the title given repeatedly to Jesus throughout the book of Revelation. He is the living one who died. They see that he is the one who has suffered and died. He's not there with CGI spectacular pristineness, as if nothing has happened through the days between Good Friday and Easter Day. He has the marks of crucifixion about him. 
And therefore they see his sufferings and they catch a glimpse of the cost of final redemption and salvation. The price that has been paid by God to bring about a time going later into Revelation when every tear will be wiped away and everything will be made new. And that company of heaven, they as we, realize the emotions of God and the extent of God's love in the sacrifice of God's only son. And they don't cheer. They are silent. They are awestruck. So there is silence in heaven as a sense of wonder and awe comes around. Wonder and awe in two different ways. Listen carefully to this and some of you just wake up. First of all, there is awful wonder at the suffering they see. Awful wonder. Because one of the great significances of silence is an acknowledgement of suffering. In the Old Testament book of Job, intriguing book, we read of a godly man, a man of God, who God permits to go through various trials and tribulations and sufferings. And the most famous characters in the book of Job, besides Job himself, are three friends who are referred to as Job's comforters. His mates, if you like, who spend the vast majority of the book trying to explain why this or that has happened to him, what he ought to do to get rid of it, to examine his past to see what he's done in the past that merits these awful things to befall upon him. But there's one verse in Job that reads like this. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they all saw that his suffering was very great. How often people in great suffering or when they're near death or they're in devastating grief don't really want words. They want someone. They want nearness. Perhaps the touch of a hand. There is awful wonder at suffering. But then there's awesome wonder at the continuing love of God who in spite of everything, in spite, amazingly, in spite of the accumulated experiences of the square mile in each direction from this very point today, God will not give up on the rebellious, warring, jealous, combative humanity 
which is so much less so often than God wanted it to be. In heaven, in spite of everything, everything we have been through, everything we have yet to go through, God's love and will for our healing and our wholeness remains. And that is wonderful. In that is ultimately our hope, causing us to strive to live up to rather than live down to who we are as those lovingly created in the image of God. People who look in the mirror and do not forget who they are the minute they turn from it. People lovingly created in the image of God, the race for whom Christ the Son of God laid down his own life to say this is the mark. This is the stance. This is the life. Is silence always golden then? No. On this day of significant silences and in this funny sort of sermon for some of you we've talked about silence as peace, silence as death, silence as anger, silence as awe at suffering, silence at awesome awareness of love. So is silence always best? No. On this day of significant silences, there is the call not to always keep silent. To protest for peace. To speak out against injustice. To shout down evil. To be heard in the defense of those who are defenseless and victims. So the last significant silence is the resolve to hear those who speak out for what is right and to join them to live out their challenges, to repudiate everything that is contrary to God's way, to reject everything that cheapens human life and continue to resolve in the words of the United Nations Charter to walk the long, hard, but ultimately right road towards respect and true peace. Amen. Lord, for the years, your love has kept and guided.